Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. You're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast, presented by Scree Gear. And you guys have probably, if you're a returning listener to the podcast, you've heard us talk about Scree a lot, because I do work with Scree and I wear Scree, and Kyler actually has some pieces of Scree Gear as well that he's talked favorably about on the podcast in the past. And the, the exciting thing is that the response... From not only you guys, but just in general in the South, as Scree has moved more into the whitetail deer hunting space, the South has really responded. And what's really cool, and, and I, I like to think that Louisiana bow hunter community has a big part of this, um, Louisiana is, I think, the last I was told, the number two sales state for Scree. And I think that's only followed by Texas. And when you think about how big they are, and I might be wrong, but I can promise you they're in the top three or four at worst. And so they wanted to get involved with the podcast on a bigger level because um, you guys have responded. And it's great stuff, and we're we're happy to have them on this year. And we're going to talk a little bit more in the intro about some of our partners for the podcast in Season 4. But with Scree, we encourage you, as always, go out and follow them all their, their uh, social media channels. Uh, YouTube, and you can find out most of the questions you have about their gear just simply by following their social media and all the things that they post and all the informative videos and stuff that they put on YouTube. Um, One last thing on them, they're doing a risk-free money-back promotion for early season whitetail. It's going to start right away and run for about 30 days, and basically it's it's an entire early season 
whitetail set of gear. Everything you need to get in the tree stand. You got 14 days to try it out if you don't like it. Risk-free, money-back guarantee. And uh, you can find out more about that at screegear.com. And also, if you have any questions for our Louisiana bowhunter community, feel free to reach out to me personally, and I'll do my best to answer any questions I can. And we'll be posting more information about that and other sales that you can take advantage of through Louisiana Bowhunter and otherwise. So screegear.com, that's S-K-R-E. Check them out at Facebook, Instagram, and otherwise. It's season four, Kyler. We are back. We're back. Back again. We even wrapped up last season in an appropriate timeline, which yeah. we didn't do the year before. <laughs> well, we uh, we joked yeah. we joked for a couple of years about well, we're still doing this, and there's still a few people listening. Yep, we might there's be beyond that joke now. Now yep. we've made it a habit. Yeah. So season four, I'm excited about um, because. I, to be totally honest with you, this podcast right now, as we're talking, I'm finally getting excited about deer season. Um, I, I think that I have never waited this long to get prepped up for the season, but I have naively convinced myself that it's because I feel prepared already in woodsmanship equipment gear clothing cameras hunting spots camp i mean i kind of got the boxes checked and i i i want to feel like i'm maybe throwing my deer season prep into cruise control mode rather than scrounging to have an opening day plan which i usually do about this time of year um so i'm excited to actually go hunting in two weeks that's pretty baller to me well um i'm the opposite because leading up until this point and it is the exactly it's september the 15th as we're recording this um but it's exactly the middle of september which puts us two weeks away and just because of everything that i personally dealt with um through covid and then and then all of the changes to our life schedule that we went through in the summer and then the storm and all that, I'm way behind on everything. Now, mm-hmm. oddly enough, I'm a little bit, I feel like, at least as of today, I feel like I'm a little bit more hyped up and excited about deer season. There's probably a couple different reasons for that. Um, but I'm a little bit behind, and that's got me frantic. And you know what happens when things get frantic, right? You make mistakes. So every time I try to get something done, I tend to break something and set myself back even further. You know, when we're talking about, like, cameras and the tractor and side-by-side and all that kind of stuff. But I haven't broke my bow yet. That's still good. So, um, go. but I'm a little bit behind, but I'm, I'm equally enthusiastic in the podcast and talking hunting and getting going with that on a weekly basis is, uh, is only going to kind of continue to light that fire a little bit more so um talking about a recap real quick before we move forward um what's give me a quick recap of of last year for you and and how things wound up for you as a hunter so um last year was probably my most successful deer hunting year outside of um outside of a, a a kind of a heat wave trip to Illinois in November for the rut. Um, but I ended up killing eight deer across two States, Mississippi and Louisiana. Um, and, 
gave uh, this is what's fun i'm sure some people do this not everybody has but i really enjoy giving deer away uh, you know as hunters are becoming decline venison becomes more of a resource that is a little more limited to the average uh, family and so i really enjoy giving a deer or parts of a deer or even just venison sausage or something to friends, neighbors, family that can't hunt anymore, an employee, somebody like that. Um, and so I actually gave four deer away last year um, and uh, kept four and I've got two kids and a wife. So that's that we will eat on that all year long. And the only time we'll buy meat beef is for a steak. And that's about it. Um, but great season, learned a lot. Um, I, I do have one regret from last season and that is that I wish I was more vocal of my goals last year. Um, I achieved my goals, but I didn't tee them up well enough at the beginning of the season, um, to really be able to like, you know, call them and be like, oh, see, I told you I was going to do this. Um, but my goal last year was to kill a deer from the ground. Um, and I did that twice. I killed two bucks from the ground. Um, sitting against a tree just like a turkey hunter would and that was like legitimately that was like a drug that's incredible um and um that was cool uh what else i had i think my favorite part of last season was i've got a new camp i had a lot of friends that came and hunt with me uh around christmas in the rut I really enjoy that. I've been putting a lot of work into my camp this year, but I want to just continue that um, and continue having a place where people want to come stay and hunt around my camp because it's not on property. It's on a small lake and it's um, central to three or four other pieces of public land that I bounce around. And that is, that, that's, that's an incredible game plan for me. That would not be for everybody, but I love having options. Um, and, uh, and so I like having my friends out staying with me and fishing, running trout lines at night and drinking crown and going deer hunting in the morning. So how, how was your season? I, I, you know, one comment to what you just said is I, I found specifically over the last couple of years that the older I get and every year that passes, I, t- I tend to value that camp time and that camp opportunity more and more, you know, absolutely having, being able to take people um and and spend time with them friends and family but you know also take them hunting and 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 all that kind of stuff is that's one of my long-term goals is to be in a better position to do more of that but um as far as my season goes it it really wasn't a bad season in that um i was able to take two nice bucks with my bow one in louisiana and one in kansas my son was able to to kill a buck um with his rifle but this is really his first year to be able to, to really bow hunt with the expectation that he can be proficient, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he was able to kill a few deer, which which made him happy. Um, you know, I I kind of did my thing, and I've alluded to this in, an, in, in a couple of ways uh, in different conversations, but I, I have a different hunting style these days than I have in the past in that I have a very specific idea and plan of how I like to hunt. And outside of that, I don't. I don't. I don't know the way to put it. I don't. I don't just go just to go. Occasionally, I might go on a whim, but I was able to execute that plan in a couple of different ways, in a couple of different locations, and had a lot of successful hunts outside of, of, of actually shooting anything. And so that, that was good. 
I was on the struggle bus for a lot of last year, but looking back, I, I, probably if you listen back to the podcast, there were several episodes where I whined and complained about having a tough year. But looking back on it, um, I always go out of state, and I had a really difficult um, November hunt in Missouri where the weather didn't cooperate, and we hunted Missouri and northern Oklahoma in a week, and and we saw some nice deer, but not the way you normally do, um, very sporadically, and it just didn't go well, and that was disappointing, but I went for the pre-rut. I got a weather pattern that was really favorable um, around Halloween, and I went up to southeast Kansas and uh, killed a beautiful, tall, eight-point, really nice, the kind of deer that Yeah, it was an awesome deer. Kill kind of deer and not only that but the kind of hunt man 30 yard shot just perfect um you can actually see that hunt on the scree youtube youtube channel i that was awesome to be able to go up there and do that and then i hunted um around the house a lot and and, and you know look like i said maybe i complained too much last year because looking back on it to be able to take two really nice bucks one with uh with levi in in louisiana and the other in kansas was was successful and uh got me looking forward to this year so you know um i'm not gonna complain that's another goal of mine i'm not gonna complain i'm gonna enjoy it it's been a rough year and i'm looking forward to a change of season so i'm gonna try to keep that positive mentality this season this year in general um i'm gonna take a minute right here to introduce to you our uh, another partner that we have and he's a previous guest on the podcast and will be a guest on the podcast this season. We're going to have Slade Priest back on the podcast at some point in this season to talk more about what he does and what he's got going on. But he has jumped on to uh, to partner and support the podcast. And if you don't, if you're not familiar with Slade, you you may recognize or remember him from his days with the Trained Assassins uh, hunting television show. And he is, is currently a uh, real tree. Realtree United Country Land Pro, and uh, you can find out everything about what he's got going on at huntinglandmansms.com. And what you've probably seen the most from Slade is the hashtag huntinglandman. Slade's got big into the real estate, and he specializes in in recreational hunting properties. And you know the thing that you need to know the most is he's not just a realtor. Um, he's still involved with the United Country Realtree digital stuff. There's still some digital hunting content that he puts out there every year. He's actively involved in the hunting community, and it's not just a realtor. This is a guy who is passionate about what he does, and when you list a property with him or you're a client looking for that special piece of property that is either where you're going to retire or where you want to invest for a place to hunt, he, he can listen to what you want, and he when he goes and looks at these properties, he knows what he's looking at. He spent his entire life in the field as a diehard sportsman, and he is really making a name for himself in that, um, in that space and selling a ton of beautiful properties. And like I said, if, if, if you are one of those people that are looking to list a piece of property, he knows how to find the client that is looking for that piece of property and if you're the kind of guy who is looking to invest some money and buy your own piece of land and you want it to be a recreational maybe even a once in a lifetime kind of hunting property you tell him what you're looking for nobody lists more nobody sells more than he does that's huntinglandman 
MS.com, Slade Priest. And we'll hear more from Slade uh, throughout the podcast in Season 4. We'll talk about what he's got going on, some of the properties he has listed, some of the other stuff he's got going on with United Country, and, and all that sort of thing. So big thanks to Slade for uh, jumping on and uh, supporting the podcast this year. What, um, Kyler, what you, we're, we're going to talk to Jonathan Bordelon. Let me, let me bury the lead a little bit. We're going to talk to Jonathan Bordelon. He's the deer program manager for the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. And really what we want to find out is what can we expect in October or even currently now as we're going out into the field and we're looking at the places that we hunt and how have they been affected by the storm? Hurricane Ida mm-hmm. is the topic of conversation, more or less. We want some factual data-driven experienced opinion on how are the deer going to respond to this how are our properties going to rebound how's it going to be in october november and how's it going to be in two years from now those are some of the things that we're going to talk to jonathan about before we do that let's uh let's 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 kind of give one quick little recap here what do you got on the books this year what are you doing this year as a hunter are you changing anything in in your in your equipment are you changing anything in your approach and um kind of what are your goals to the season yeah uh good question i i was talking with um earlier today i was talking with craig stanky who was the um if anybody listening spends any time in an archery shop you probably know craig stanky was the psc bow rep for i think 15 or 16 years and he lives up in i think minnesota and kind of became a good friend of mine we, he asked me a similar question. I asked him a similar question because we're talking about arrows. Um, and uh, I'm a speed guy. He's a speed guy. And I was telling him that um, the Easton Carbon Hex are the best lightweight arrow that I've shot as from a durability standpoint. Um, the gold tip velocities were okay they were acceptable good i'd maybe break half my arrows in a season whereas when i went to the black eagle carnivores if you looked at them wrong or if you accidentally touched a spider web walking through the woods they would break and um i i would never go back to those at at my grains for inch preference and my draw uh, in my um, spine, they were they were just too fragile. I didn't like them. Um, but so what I told him though was, you know, honestly, I'm really confident in all my gear right now. I'm not a chaser of gear and equipment, and I get so I find proficiency, I find functionality, and and then at best I might try to make it lighter. And um, so I'm still hunting out of an M7. I'm still hunting with the original Hawk helium sticks in which I did a ton of mods way, way before they came out with the suction cups and before and, mods became popular. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I modded everything back before there was another option to mod it. So I pretty much did a Frankenstein between a millennium a Hawk and a, a lone wolf pretty much. And, um, so I'm, I'm still hunting those three sticks. I was hunting four, but then last season I went down to um, three because I, I got on the program with these cableators, which are, I highly suggest, very stable, mm-hmm. lightweight. And so I'm at three sticks, um, and I have two cableators on my middle and top stick, and then I have a very long Amstel able- ader on the bottom that 
is longer than I would suggest you do on any stick higher than your top one. It's just not really safe, I guess you could say. Um, so from a gear perspective, I'm still shooting carbon hex. I'm still shooting fixed blades. I shoot wasp drones. Um, I did switch to the PSE carbon stealth Mach one last season. That's an awesome bow, a freaking incredible bow. I love that damn thing. Um, and, I'm not a changer of gear. Once you, you know, once you start finding functionality, what's the point in changing other than just either boredom or liking to switch it up or you're actually, I'm not chasing a problem. I don't have a problem to chase anymore. So um, unless something becomes discontinued or I have a huge change in heart on arrow weights or something, then I'm good with what I've got. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm more in the mindset of increasing my ability as a woodsman than I am increasing my equipment to, for some reason. So, um, that's my, that's kind of my mantra, which also very, you know, professionally coincides with my total lack of, um, preparation for the season so far. Like I said, I feel prepared already. I have my stuff. I've ordered my arrows. I've, you know, I've shot a little bit, and um, I feel ready to go, pretty much. So, what about you? Well, what are you changing? So, we have said publicly, and we've talked privately numerous times about how one of the reasons we feel like our podcast has been successful and it has worked, and people have listened to it, is because we provide a polarizing in a in a positive and 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 constructive way we provide a polarizing viewpoints about a lot of things right you're kind of the public land mobile guy i'm more of the private land manager guy and and a lot of different things like that well now we are coming together a little bit and i hope that that doesn't affect uh our previous assumptions about how effective we were but but no um I'm not changing anything either. I, I'm the same as you. I ha- I'm going into my third year with the Hoyt Helix, which this is my second Hoyt that I've shot longer than I would typically say I was going to because I'm I, I can be a bow nerd like I'm sure a lot of you are and want to try something new. But this is the second Hoyt in a row I've had where I was so comfortable with it that I just the only and the only reason I have this one or the only reason I bought this one three years ago was because jay james convinced me to he mm-hmm. uh, for lack of a better way to put it he called me one day and he's like you got to come shoot this bow if you like the bow you got now you got to come shoot this one it is it's that bow but improved and he was right so i'm shooting the hoyt helix i shoot victory gamer 350s and grim reaper broadheads and i am as happy and confident i can say i made this comment to to our mutual friend bruce solly with t3 game calls we were talking about this he bought uh, a new bow this year and, and we were having this conversation just the other day and I, I made a comment to him i said this is you know i'm in a stage of life as a hunter as a bow hunter right now where the last thing i think about when i'm in the stand specifically anticipating a shot the last thing i think about is my bow mm-hmm. because i have ultra confidence in it you know like i i know that if i do my job that it's going to do his and that hasn't always been the case as i tinkered with different equipment and tried this and i I had it dialed in and it was good, but if I'm being honest, I sat in the tree and wondered, is it going to be right in the in the right moment? You know, I don't do that now. But where I am changing and where I have to eat a little bit of crow 
in some things I may have said in season two and parts of season three is I'm going much more mobile. Mm. We've talked in depth, and I do still have I do still have the same opinions. I do still have the same um, strategies about hunting private property and managed property and pre pre hung sets that you can find me talk about that on, on previous episodes where I have a, a game plan for how I hang those and when I hunt them and all that. I'm still going to do that. That hasn't gone away. But last year, thanks to you and Levi Madden and uh, Colin Averett, who is my cameraman now, and several other friends of mine who are, who are very committed to the mobile style of hunting, I broke down. I bought an XOP mobile lock-on. I can't even remember which brand. And I bought a set of Hawk Helium sticks, and I hunted the last half of the season um, mobile. Uh, well, mostly mobile. I, I still hunted some of my pre-hung sets on the right days and stuff like that. But I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was easier, and it was more functional than I assumed it was going to be in some of my previous opinions. When I got it right, and to your point, I modded it the way it should be. I also mm-hmm. have the... Uh, the Hawk Helium sticks with the cableators. Uh, I buy my stuff from Custom Amsteel Products. I have no affiliation to them, and neither does this podcast, but they sell a good product at a good price, and the shipping's great, so I would recommend them. Um, I bought some, some Amsteel products from them and modified my setup. And um, one of the things that I did was I actually ordered, it only cost me 20 bucks. I ordered a backpacking kit for a commercial chemical spray rig. So it's like a hardy backpack kit with a, with with a lot of padding, and it's meant to carry a really heavy tank full of chemical, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I bought that and I attached it to the back of my platform. So honestly, I'm I'm even kind of playing the game with weight because I don't have to be as concerned as some other people because my my carrying kit allows me to carry more weight more comfortably because of this 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 thing and it it's great it's the best decision i ever made as far oh, as it's just a harness yeah it's just like the backpacking oh. harness <laughs> i've been sitting here wondering what you're spraying <laughs> i yeah. thought you bought the like the the, the hopper and everything no, I'm, I'm like yeah. what are you spraying i'm so into deer sense that i'm spraying my way into the stand now no That's so it's probably... just it's just the harness and backpacking stuff and it and it has lots of different little attachments on the back of it where i was able to easily modify it to attach it to the bottom of my platform so instead of instead of just simply padded straps or anything like that this thing is meant to ride and carry on your back a lot of weight so i'm kind of able to be a little bit more free and that's important to me because i carry where did you get that from i ordered it from amazon i don't even remember the brand i just i just had this thought i was like what what could i put on this stand that would make it easier to carry without having to worry about sacrificing too much weight and all that and I just, I was like, well, it's 20 bucks. I'll try it, you know, and it, it's yeah, great. Yeah. So that's important for me because I carry more gear than a lot of people, especially with the camera stuff and being a gear junkie and incapable of packing light in life. Yeah. Um, so that's worked out. And I'm excited about doing that. I'm actually, and, and it's actually probably going to play a big role in, you know, with, with the storm. Um, I've had a lot of change to my, my home property in Louisiana. There's a lot of trees down. A lot of my hardwoods have changed a lot. And... You know, this is going to allow me, I think, to do a lot more early season hunting in a mobile style to try to figure out how this is going to change the deer. Because they're inevitably, you know, the, the, the food sources are going to change. The travel patterns are going to change. I expect them to anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm um, outside of that. 
Um, I, I, I still hunt in Mississippi in my home area and in my property here in Louisiana. And I'm going to go to Missouri and hunt with Harris Outfitters at some point. And I plan to go back to Kansas again. I would highly advise or recommend to any of you that are considering hunting out of state, if you want to make an out of state trip, Southeast Kansas is the place to go. There's lots of fun hunts to be had. There's a lot of successful hunts to be had. My experience in hunting in a lot of different places, there's not anything better than Southeast Kansas from about November the 5th until about November the 15th. They just opened, didn't they? Yeah, they have an early, they have a youth, they have an early primitive muzzleloader, and they have an early youth season at around Labor Day. And it only lasts like four or five days where they have a youth rifle and a muzzleloader. And then it closes again, and then archery opens on the, today, on the 15th. I yeah, it opens today. It opens, my bank, well, today's the 14th? 15th, whatever. I don't know. I think it's 15th. Um, but my banker, Lee Hardy, killed a, a stud, probably like a 160s class today. He sent me a picture of it earlier. There, there are so. so many great opportunities for deer hunting and other hunting. In Southeast, I don't, I don't know what it is about that area because I've hunted three or four hours north. And three or four hours and closer in proximity in some of the same time frames. And it's just not the same. There's an area yeah, cool. in a circle around Independence, Kansas that's just phenomenal. Leads me to um, 180 Outdoors. That is, uh, I've hunted at 180 Outdoors for like 10 years now. And I know that there are a number of our community members, because I see them posting and ask me about it, who have also hunted with 180. They have a pretty big presence in Louisiana um, through uh just marketing and sportsman shows and other things like that and there's a lot of guys from our area that go up there and they are your southeast kansas connection whether you're looking for a guided outfit hunt whether you're looking to lease a piece of land whether you're looking to buy a piece of land southeast kansas and northern oklahoma you can find out everything about them at hunt180.com and i can assure you those guys know everything that there is to know about that area of the world and they can set you up, like I said, turkey, whitetail, waterfowl, uh, guided, semi-guided, lease property, or purchase property. They've got the connection on all of that. And right now, they have, they're doing a really cool late-season split waterfowl hunt. And they're only doing three weekends on some pretty exclusive property in that area. So if you're interested in making a January, it's, it's three different weekends in January. You can find out about it at hunt180.com. If you're interested in taking a few buddies and going up for a late-season Kansas Mallard beatdown, they're the place to go. So check them out at hunt180.com. Um, cool. I'm pretty excited, and I'm, I'm really excited to, to talk to Jonathan because I've got a lot of questions personally about what it's going to be like in two weeks when I comp in a tree because there's a lot of change happening. And it's not – I mentioned this when we talked to Jonathan – I use my property as an example when we talk about this, but it's because I know that my property is very prototypical of what a lot of people in a lot of the state are looking at. You know, mixed hard pine, uh, pine hardwood, um, wind damage, localized flooding damage, all that kind of stuff. And so I know a lot of you are going to have those same questions. So uh, I'm very interested to talk to him and find out what he thinks about what we should expect from, I guess, not just from hunting, but from 
management preparation and even if you're hunting um public ground that is in this area we we talk about a couple of different areas some that are more more damaged less damaged uh surge prone and and whatever so we're going to go to that um conversation with jonathan and this year in season four of louisiana bow hunter podcast our guest is brought to you each and every week by the Chamberlain Lending Team and Movement Mortgage. If that name sounds familiar to you, you've probably seen Brian Chamberlain posting on Facebook a lot. He has a very good sense of humor and he's very active with Louisiana Bowhunter. And uh, his team at Movement Mortgage, they do residential loans, primary vacation and investment homes, cash out and rate reduction refinance, renovation lendings for add-ons, pools, construction of any kind um they can get credit scores as low as 580 get you down as little as zero percent down and 42 percent of the profit of everything with movement mortgage goes to the movement foundation which is used for hope centers in south america as well as charter schools for underprivileged children in the u.s they're very involved in charitable work which makes their company stand out a little bit more than others and for kind of the, the 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 current situation um, you can contact them and find out a lot about what's going on with 203H loans for disaster relief right now with everything that we're going through. So, so contact Brian Chamberlain and uh, Movement Mortgage. So let's go talk to Jonathan. Our guest on the podcast this episode is Mr. Jonathan Bordelon from the Louisiana Department of Wildlife Fisheries. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So... First of all, thanks for returning. We've actually had you on the pod before and had a very positive response to that episode. There was a lot of great information, and I know that the work that you do as the, you're the deer program manager, correct? Correct. Yeah, so the work that you do as the deer program manager um, is very interesting to our community. Obviously, uh, a large majority of what we do is about whitetail deer hunting with, with, with archery equipment, so um, we know you have a, a ton of very valuable information to share, and and we're we're kicking off season four with uh, with you as our guest because we've gone through a lot of things um, this year leading into this fall whitetail deer season, and we want to talk a, a little bit about that and get your thoughts and feelings and maybe even some facts and and data about some of that. But the first thing I wanted to ask was if you could give us kind of a a state of the union of what's going on in the deer program in 2021 in Louisiana. Well, thanks again. Um, as far as uh, 2021, um, you know, we were coming off of what was a pretty good season uh, in 2020, 2021, um, across the state with the exception of southwest Louisiana, where both hunting efforts and harvest was down, understandably, uh, due to last year's storms. And um, things looked pretty positive uh, coming into this season simply because of data that was collected last year. You had some some really great harvest numbers across most of the state the previous season. In addition to that, when we talk about reproduction and recruitment, we're talking about lactation, and lactation rates in general were pretty strong across the board. So with that, you were expecting, um, you know, a pretty good crop of deer uh, coming into this season uh, before 
this current year's crop. So, it, you know, the outlook for 2021 20, uh, was pretty positive. Of course, um, as you alluded to, we've had some some definite impacts, and, and we can talk more about those. But it, it looked to be uh, pretty positive and pretty good. Matter of fact, uh, 2020 season, um, we'd harvested um, – at least the estimated harvest was uh, just over 190,000 deer in Louisiana, and and just to put that into perspective, um, you know we've only we only hit 191 other time in the last 10 years. So, you know if you're kind of gauging is it an up or down year, last year was definitely an up year, uh, all while um, you know dealing with the uh, aftermath of of last year's storms. Um, you know, but despite that, even with that drop in in Southwest in participation in harvest, uh, the rest of the state was able to uh, pull it up due to a kind of an overachieving year for for most hunters and most parishes. Do you think that that? I have two questions. Um, sure. First, first, based off of what you just said, do you think that that increase is because of any kind of management or anything like that or do you think that it's uh maybe because of of more fortunate weather patterns which created better hunting opportunities during the season what what do you think or what data do you have to attribute those things i I think you're right uh in regards to some of those assumptions certainly weather does play a critical role um when you look at last year it would be easy to assume that um you know maybe in a covid year we folks had a little more time to hunt. And, and I'll add to that is one of the things that we track in our mail survey is not only how many hunters reported deer hunting and how many deer that they harvested, but how many trips afield. And when you look at last year's numbers, uh, a couple of things jumped out at me. Uh, one, uh, one was that our hunter numbers are continuing. While they didn't drop significantly, they, they've kind of been flat the last few years, but they're, they're much lower than where we were even 10, 20 years ago. So we've seen a, you know, a steady decline in hunter numbers. Whether or not we're flattening out, it, it's tough to tell at this point. But we certainly did not have a, a spike in hunter numbers. So we didn't have more hunters afield. But what we did have is the hunters that did hunt, they pursued deer uh, more often than they had in previous seasons. So our total number of hunter efforts was up approximately 25%, and that, that's pretty significant. So it just just means that, you know, that while we didn't have an, an increase in that number of hunters, um, those folks that, that, that at least uh, checked the box that they deer hunted last season went a few more times than they traditionally do. And obviously that, you know, that can account for an increase in harvest, and it certainly likely contributed uh, as well as some weather. But some other things that were, were, were somewhat in line with what we had seen in previous years is, is the makeup of males and females in the bag. So when we look at bucks and does, it was almost unchanged from the previous year. It was, it was you know, within a percentage. And so... You know, it was while there were more efforts and more harvests, the percentage of bucks and does was basically unchanged. And when we look at DMAP, uh, there was an increase in DMAP harvest. And, and, and you know, again, that's, there's, uh, may have mentioned it before, but there's 1.5 million acres enrolled. So that's roughly 10% of the state's deer habitat. So it's a nice sample size. 10% of, of anything that large is, is going to provide you some insight or at least 
uh, allow you to make a comparison to that data set from you know and, and have something meaningful to compare. And DMAP harvest was up. Percentage of males and females was roughly about the same. And the age structure in the deer that were reported and in, in, um, harvested in DMAP had actually um, increased. So we had a little bit lower percentage of year-and-a-half-old bucks, and we had an even greater percentage of two-and-a-half, you know, and subsequently we had a greater percentage of two-and-a-half-year-and-older. So wasn't like folks were just mowing down everything. They were killing roughly the same percentage of bucks and does as they had the previous years. They just killed a few more of both. And of what was killed, at least in DMAP, again, it was up, similar to the statewide numbers being up. Um, it was up, but it was up with a percentage that was um, as good or better as far as older age animals than any other year, I believe. I don't remember the exact percentage, but it was one of the first, one of the only years that the percentage of year-and-a-half-old bucks in the DMAP bag uh, made up less than 10% of the total deer, total bucks harvested. So that... It was right around 10, but it was just under, and, and um, it had been hovering just above, so it was a very slight change, but it wasn't one of those uh, lock where harvest went up, but it was, you know, you can kind of tell, well, they, they shot a lot more younger animals. People were just trying to get venison in the freezer. Uh, you know, maybe they killed a few more does than they typically would have, just trying to get an extra deer for the freezer. in you know, in a, in a COVID year, and but it really wasn't. So the percentage of bucks and does almost unchanged, the number of deer harvested up, number of hunters more or less flat, but number of hunter efforts was up 25%. So those were kind of the takeaways from last season. Um, my other question um, was you mentioned lactation rates as, I guess, uh, one of the ways that you guys calculate data. Can you explain to us, what that is and how you collect that data? Yeah, it's it's just an index, and, and an index in this case is just providing us a year-to-year comparison, and it's it's very crude uh, simply because, um, but you're using that same technique from one year to the other, and we're collecting it on those 1.5 million acres enrolled in DMAP, so that's kind of your data set that's scattered around the state, so you're you're not getting all of the deer harvested, but you're getting data from a large percentage. Well, you're getting data from a percentage of them. In addition to that, we do what uh, some of your listeners may be uh, familiar with is the WMA managed hunts. Uh, there's also some managed hunts on a couple of U.S. Forest Service properties. Um, when we look at lactation rates from those, both the WMA and the DMAP, data from last year it was up slightly and that that just basically means that the the female deer the does that are two and a half years and older uh they're wet or have a bag at the time of harvest so um it does it's not a, a measure of recruitment it doesn't tell us how many fawns were recruited it just tells us that they were still lactating at the time of harvest which was a good indication that they at least nursed a fawn until the fall hunting season um, so that that's an index or a comparison we use because it's a tremendous number. It's a big data set that we can get and kind of look from year to year. And as you would expect, there were events 
uh, and we'll talk a little more about that, but there are events that can affect that, and, and we experienced some of those events here this year with the storms. So um, that lactation is, is pretty insightful, and we've actually, um, you know, can you know, can have a pretty good measure of, of what recruitment was, even though it's not a direct measure, uh, based on evaluating the amount of lactating does at, at time of harvest. And, again, the value in it is just comparing it from year to year, roughly about the same, you know, so you're comparing the same areas using the same method, and you're just looking for uh, changes in trends as far as it going up and down. Most years, as you would expect, there's very little change, but there are things that cause it to go up or down, and certainly a couple of things that can cause it to go down is untimely flooding uh, when farms would be highly vulnerable, uh, which, you know, could be associated with, with tropical events and storms. And the other that we've learned is late summer flooding associated with rivers. And it's not that fawns or deer are drowning from those late summer fawns. It's just if you think about what's happening, those animals are di- being displaced. They're being pushed into habitat that provides refuge from floodwaters. But not only are deer being pushed into those areas, um, so are predators, and, and also you have an increased number of animals relying on a smaller amount of habitat. Um, what habitat conditions are like, we're not sure, but the takeaway is when you have late summer flooding, you typically have a, a, a drop in lactation, and, and we have, have observed that over time. And, and actually, Mississippi State has recently published um, a peer-reviewed paper utilizing both Mississippi and Louisiana uh, data that was collected um, in the river parishes along the Mississippi River, and it shows that very thing. Uh, it shows that there is a correlation uh, in late summer flooding, and, and we have observed that in other river basins, such as the Atchafalaya River Basin, and it actually has been a catalyst for declarations of emergency in the past when we've limited either sex opportunity in areas that had late summer flooding, uh, such as we did, I believe, in 2019 in Deer Area 5. Uh, and there's a threshold there. You get to June, July, and, uh, you know, you have to define those things. And, you know, if you have floodwaters that lasted till, till the early July, you can't really tell in the data any change in lactation. It's exactly as if there was no water at all or if the water had receded in April. But if you break that uh, August 1st threshold, then there's a precipitous drop in lactation. So it's uh, at this point, it's um, it's almost predictable because the last few events um, that have met that criteria have resulted in almost the exact match in numbers, which are pretty abysmal lactation numbers. And the subsequent years where water's down at least in early July or sooner, or even preferably never up at all, uh, you know, lactation rates are, are pretty steady and close to uh, closer to long-term averages, you know. So there's very little difference from year to year, uh, typically, unless you have a, a an event that causes that, that, ch- that major change or trigger change. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty good segue into the next part. Kyler, did you have any questions about some of that information before we move on to the next topic? Yeah, I do. Um, number one is... When y'all are essentially calculating how many hunter hunter efforts there are, um, when you are factoring in the the decrease in number of hunters, 
how, are you able to account for a number of lifetime license hunters there are after they buy a lifetime license? Is it as an assumption that they're yeah, continuing life, every year? Yeah, lifetime license. Yeah, lifetime license hunters are factored in now. They weren't at one time, and the other group that's factored in, Kyler, is a big group that's growing, and that's senior hunting and fishing fishing license mm-hmm. that are sold. Prior to 2012, they were basically just, we were using um, just folks that were buying a big game license. And not just a big game, I'm just, I, should, I should start over. We were only using people who were buying a, a resident hunting license, uh, you know, prior to 2012. And then after that time, they started factoring in the lifetime license holders as well as uh, senior hunter and fishermen, because that group has really grown. You have to remember going back to 2000. At that time, it only affected people who turned 60 after June 1st of 2000. So, you know, with by the time you got to 2012, you had folks that were basically from 60 to 72 that were now in that bracket, and it had grown to the point of where it was such a significant number, they definitely needed to be included in the survey. But, but yeah, they're, they're included... Uh, but despite that, uh, you know, we're seeing we're seeing that decline in deer hunter numbers. So, what we're doing is, for instance, senior hunting and fishing license. You're stratifying that. So those survey respondents, and don't hold me to the percentages, but it's it's a it's a you know much less than 50 percent of senior hunting and fishing license holders actually deer hunt. So you know many of them are getting it. They may only fish even. Uh, so. What we're asking them, they'll receive a mail survey, um, and what happens is with that mail survey, it's going out to 6% of, of all license holders, including seniors and lifetime license holders, and you're asking them, you know, did you hunt? And, you know, if they didn't hunt, well, then they're kind of out of the survey, but if they did, you continue to ask questions along the way. So, uh, yeah, they, they are being included, um, but uh, and there are a growing number of both, both lifetime and, and senior hunters so uh the other aspect of it you know is obviously um is some of those lifetime licensed hunters um you know some of those are falling out of the ranks of hunters uh, you know depending on when they purchase those licenses so uh there's a lot that we need to do to try to tease that aspect of it out right now we're just uh, extrapolating off of the number of lifetime licenses issued, but we, we really uh, need to focus moving forward on capturing the actual number of those hunters that are still active in, in hunting, so or fishing okay. for that matter, to, yeah. to answer other questions. Cool. But I, the only group really don't know... Go, go ahead, Kyle, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, so I do have one other question that I've I've wondered for a while. It's it's along these same lines, but not exactly related to what we've been talking about. Obviously, you've got number of hunter effort numbers, and you've got number of your harvested efforts. Do y'all factor in any type of per hunter deer killed average into our bag yeah. limits every year? Yeah, it it was. Um... We look at the number of hunters who reported hunting that killed zero, uh, then obviously the number that would have killed anywhere from, from one to six, you know, um, and, and there are a few exceptions with DMAP and some other special things that could allow you to exceed that season bag limit, but we won't get into those because it's really just kind of the uh, uh, exception by far. Uh, but yes, we're able to, and 
in in this state, I mean, what drives the harvest is just simply the number of hunters killing one. Um, believe it or not, uh, there's there's a large percentage, and I don't have those percentages in front of me, but uh, there's a large percentage who report deer hunting, but don't necessarily kill a deer. But you're including. You have to keep in mind that some of these hunters are reporting that they they may have only made you know one to five deer hunts. So these aren't you're obviously some of the more avid hunters, but hunters that went a weekend or or you know or so, mm-hmm. and um, they're including in there. But the vast majority, the big block, uh, is made up of that group that kills one. And then as you go, as you would expect two, three, and, and so on and so forth. But by the time you get to, uh, to like four to six deer, you're less than, you're, you're less than 6% of the total harvest. So, um, the oh, that's a great number to know. Hunters, yeah, the percentage of hunters that kill um, one to three, and that's successful, not total hunters, is is well up into the 90s. Again, I apologize for not having those numbers available in front of me to give you that specific number, but it it's uh it's over it's it's roughly it's in the low to mid 90s is where it fluctuates. So that's the percentage of successful hunters that kill 1 to 3. And then you look at well what percentage of the harvest does that make up? And it's typically in the mid to upper 90s, and, and the reason is, is, you know, these hunters, um, you know, the percentages are obviously different because uh, while it's less than, it may be 5% of them kill 4 to 6, and it could, and it's not going to be the same each year, That that's why, you know, I, I would have just looked sure. at last year's as an example, but, you know, so if you have that 95% of them that, that killed 1 to um, 3, the other five percent killed four to six. Um, you know, they it really that group um, you know accounts for a little bit bigger because you're multiplying their kill by four, five, and six, opposed to the ninety-five percent that you're multiplying by one, two, and three. So uh, it does make up a little bit larger chunk uh, of the percentage than the number that represents it. But but that's where it is. It's in that range. So. When we're talking about deer limits in Louisiana, um, we have, you know, obviously a very liberal deer limit, but when we look at where, you know, what what would be the impact of cutting that to, say, even three, um, it would basically lead to, you know, if people behaved the same and didn't hold that third tag because they didn't want to tag out, in all likelihood, we'd be somewhere in the low to mid 90s as far as percentage of the harvest that we typically would have had otherwise. So um, that that is that's always been uh, that it's something to tease and look at uh, because it it always has been of interest. Uh, and unfortunately, you know that group that kills zero, uh, you know that that's unfortunate. But again, you know some of those literally are marking that they're hunting one to five times. So. Uh, you know, that kind of understanding why some of those, you know, that's a good chunk of them that, that only report sure. hunting those few times. And, and, well, the, and, the reason you know, why that. I asked that was because uh, we we hear pretty often that, you know, we're, we have too liberal of a bag limit or people can kill too yeah. many deer. I have sure, never had the sure. data like you just shared with us, but... It sounds yeah. like a very minute percentage of all hunters are actually tagging out. So it's yeah, not like it this is. rampant it's small. problem. It's less than one percent. Yeah, there there is less. It, it's not um, the number that kills five 
to or six even. So we'll just jump to five or six. Very seldom does that in, does that equal greater than one percent. It can be more than one percent, but it's never even two percent. Now it may be more than two percent of the harvest because you're multiplying that small group by five and six deer. So it you know it makes up a larger percentage that they represent for you know just for obvious reasons. But yeah, that's typically where it's at. It's it's that it's it accounts for a very small percentage. So it it becomes it becomes more of a philosophical debate uh, than a than obviously a, a biological one when you're talking about setting those yeah. limits. And and there's exceptions, uh, Kyler. When when you talk about the things we're talking about, and you apply them to a property, then it it can be impactful and it can be significant, but then when you average it across a deer area, it becomes, you know, you can have the exceptions to it, but the average, well, the fact that you have six deer, you just you have such a few, a small percentage of hunters that are reporting killing that number, that it that is much less significant. And when you look at it at the state level, it it really is it is not near as significant. So. I don't want to say that it, it makes no difference at all because at the property level, and look, that's where most of us hunt, and that's where yeah. we're impacted. So it does matter, and, and obviously at the property level, you know, you could probably give an example where someone has a small parcel of land that they're able to harvest five or six deer, and thus if you're hunting on the same small parcel of land, it, it they limit your opportunity for success, you know, so... It, it can. It's just all a matter of scale. But when we look at it at the deer area and statewide level, appears to be much less of an issue. But of course, you know, we're, we're, we all understand that you know, at at at, at a certain scale, for an individual, um, you know, it can be impactful. So you kind of have to be sensitive to that and and not just brush it off as well. It, it really doesn't matter because it it does. Um, you know, if you're talking about the property level, it, it can, you know, so, you know, you can, while the, while the norm or the average is one thing, uh, that exception, if you're where the exception occurs, uh, you know, is impactful. So, um, so, so, you know, it's important to be sensitive to that, uh, but at the well, same time, recognize the, the impacts to the, to the state. Yeah, that, that's a lot of really good data. Um, I, I want to, I want to take one quick second because I jotted this down, and I don't want to wait to the end of the podcast to say it. Um, the note that I made was, and, and you unknowingly, Jonathan, you sort of led me into this. The note that I made while you were talking was, you can only do so much, so fill out your survey. And, you know, what I mean right. by that is you can go the extra mile in your efforts, in your money spent, and everything to manage your property. And maybe that works pretty well for your property, big, large, medium, whatever. But you guys can only do so much, and it and it's and it's 100% dependent on the amount of data that you're given, right? So you're talking about you use the number 10%. I mean, how much greater could the department do with its decision making if you could double or triple that percentage and have a much larger data set and a much more big picture idea of what's going on in the state so i just i don't want to yeah. dive off into it and i don't want to preach to people but i mean if if i took i took a lot of things away from what you just said but if i took anything away from it i want to encourage people to fill their survey out and do it as completely and honestly as they can because i want you to have 
in a perfect world, I want you to have a, a complete set of data, but I want you to get as close to 100% as possible so that you guys can make the best decisions for the state because we're all in it together, whether you only hunt one piece of private property or you hunt lots of different property and land across the state. So I just wanted to make that point, and I didn't want to wait to the end of the podcast to do it. So um, Thanks, Law. But let, let's move into um, some of the information that we really kind of set up for this episode that we really is very prevalent in all of our minds uh, right now, and, and that is the Hurricane Ida that we just that we just experienced in the state. And I want to break this down into a couple of categories so that we give each one its fair due of, of discussion and information, not only for those areas, but for the people that are concerned about those areas. And, and, and those two things I want to break are, the break point for those two things are, we're going to have a certain um, area that we discuss here where the devastation and the impact is obvious for everything involved, from the personal lives, private property, as well as the wildlife habitat, the deer, and everything else that lives there have been absolutely, um, you know, stricken by this thing. But then we have another segment of large segment of state, and I am included in this. I live in one of these areas of the state where there's a lot, you know, it's not so much devastation that the, that, that it's displaced and killed a bunch of deer and, and, and all that, but it has done immense change to the landscape, and it, and it certainly has an effect, as you alluded to in the previous part of this conversation, with the timing of it giving um, the fact that a lot of does have little babies or maybe are dropping and all that kind of stuff. So so let's break it down like that, and I want to start off with the second category okay. I, I mentioned. Um, you know, we just want to talk about the effects, and, and, and I'm going to give you a few points to talk about, and then, you know, whatever data and information and your opinion based off your position. So if you look at the landscape, and I'll use the area that I live in as an example, uh, the biggest thing that I see where I'm at is you have some flood-prone areas, but you have a ton of damage in the landscape from large trees down. A lot of those are, are mass crop-producing trees, browse and vegetation affected by not only the water but the destruction from the wind damage and all that speaking now and into october november as the seasons change and 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 the uh the habitat changes with the change in the seasons what should we expect of of this effect on the deer um with their how's it going to change their behavior how are they going to adjust to it what should we expect to see as hunters out on the landscape over the next couple of months yeah that, and, and that's a great one lock uh, as far as forested uh habitat that was outside of surge areas uh where you just had significant wind damage so we'll we'll try to just limit it to that uh, great. Yeah. obviously there'll be a a short-term loss of, of mass, uh, hard mass, uh, simply because it's, it's just not going to be there. It would, you know, we've all been blown down prematurely, uh, at the least, uh, and at, and those trees, uh, obviously that have been uprooted, uh, those are, are going to be lost. Of course, you know, you'll have some smaller poles or other individual trees that survive the storm, so they'll still be available, and you should have, in most cases, uh, you know, regeneration of those species as long as that site isn't going through some type of 
you know, major hydrologic change, uh, but that wouldn't have been triggered by the storm alone. It would have only impacted the, the trees that were there. Uh, but the positives moving forward never, and positive would be the wrong term, it's never positive when you have a storm and damage, but what you could end up with um, in the future is just that increased sunlight to the forest floor, which is going to promote the growth of, of forest plants that, that deer obviously key in on and depend on, as well as going to allow gaps in the canopy for those regenerating species that, you know, many of which would have been blown down to, uh, to come up and, and replace those that were, that were lost. So those species should, should be replaced um, pretty, pretty quickly and readily. And, of course, the extent of damage is it's going to vary. It's, it's so variable. Uh, your individual location uh, may not fit the norm. But in the more forested landscapes outside of surge, um, you know, there'll be some, some short-term setback in mass availability, but you'll, get, you'll gain some improved forage. Uh, in the years to come. It won't be there this year for obvious reasons because we're at the end of the growing season. But in the growing seasons to come, you should see an increase in the amount of forage uh, at least in the next handful of years for, for deer. So that would be a positive. Uh, when we move down into the marsh, though, our areas that were more greatly impacted by surge and floodwaters then the more immediate impact is going to be a, a negative, uh, simply because of fawn loss, what we had talked about earlier in, in the cast, uh, simply the timing of that. And it, it's often never 100% loss, but uh, when you're talking about barrier lands or lands that were kind of tidally influenced, then you would suspect a, a good percentage of fawns if, you know, to be lost in that situation, if not most. Uh, it's difficult to say. Uh, I'm not sure if I've covered this in, in a previous cast, but there's data out now that we published uh, tied to Pasolutra WMA that showed, um, you know, basically sightings before and after major storms. And, and that was pretty insightful. Um, the first occurred in 2005 with Katrina. We look at the 2005 spotlight survey numbers from Pasolutra, which is basically just the mouth of the Mississippi. And then in 2006, a year after the storm, and the numbers in 2006, there are actually more deer spotted on that survey than before. But, of course, that was influenced by the change in the structural, it was just structural change in vegetation. Deer are likely just more visible mm. in 2006. Yeah. But the takeaway is that they weren't wiped out by Katrina. There were still deer there, and to the surprise it's of incredible. the staff that were doing the actual surveys, they actually spotted more. Again, it's not that the numbers increased. They were likely more visible, but you were detecting deer. And jumping ahead, in 2007, we started ear-tagging deer on Pasolutra for a mark recapture project. It's not hurricane-related. You're not collaring deer. It's simply just ear tags and detections with game cameras. And it went on for seven years. And when I look back, and I had some numbers and some data from that, but in 2008, we had two hurricanes, both uh, Gustav and Hurricane Ike, uh, put significant surge across Pasolutra WMA. And while, you know, it was especially Gustav, it was it was, you know, it was major inundation uh, on that area, pretty significant storm. We came back 
after got the cameras back up and we detected 11 of 15 deer that were be, that were ear tagged um, at that time and it doesn't mean the other four drowned it just simply means they did not walk in front of one of our cameras but 11 out of 15 it at least showed us that the majority of those adult animals survived a, a pretty significant storm um, four years later 2012 these are just way too often hurricane isaac comes through that same area uh, and, and nails it and kind of similar numbers it was we had 13 ear tag deer that we were looking at before the storm and then after the storm the months that followed we were at, we picked 10 of those 13 up and again it, it doesn't mean the other three drowned um, lock I mean we did not have a hundred percent detection rates without storms if that makes any sense right, so yeah. um, you know you can't say you lost the other three you likely could have uh, b but you couldn't say it with certainty but uh, 11 out of 15 and 10 out of 13, and th those were major hurricanes. And again, kind of going back to 05 with Katrina, that was a you know that was a monster, and it it rolled right over that area. And you would have thought the next year you would not have seen a deer, uh, much less uh, to the surprise of the staff, they they were counting more deer than they had counted the previous year. Again, you know you could see where they you know your de your detections were rate was was biased uh but but the takeaway that i was trying to express is the fact that miraculously those animals survived that uh well, the only issue we're, we're seeing is you know obviously they survived uh for for a long time without even our intervention on those barrier lands and thrived there uh the, the only thing that, that that worries me at this point is just the frequency of these events and 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 the obvious is the loss of of um, the loss of a fawn crop. That's once every ten or twenty years. That's one thing. But you know these these events are becoming so frequent, and and as a result, it you know it, it likely will start to to shape and change some of our regulations in the future or season structures in the future. And case in point, Pasolutra right now. What do we have there? We have an archery-only season, and it's bucks only. And, and you can see why. That area is just taking it on the chin time after time after time. And you're continuing to lose fawn crop after fawn crop. And it has by far the, the most conservative deer season that you could have on a public area. But it's, it's for obvious reasons. Yeah. Uh, it's not that deer are being wiped out by these storms, but the habitat's being impacted. You're having loss of land. Uh, due to these storms and these huge waves and, and surge events, so you're losing vegetation, then you're subsequently losing land, which which you know you're losing habitat, and and that those are all negatives. And of course, the loss of fawns, while that doesn't move into the next year, it impacts this current year. So it is significant, but that's very different between those barrier or areas that are influenced by tidal flooding verse areas that are just north of all of that where you're just having more of the wind impacts. So wind impacts, the deer are going to weather. They may even benefit from it down the road from the increased forage. But, but these guys that are taking it on the chin time after time after time uh, from these tidal and surge events and, and, and flooding events that are, that are so close to the coast, uh, that, that you know, there really, there really is no no silver lining that I could think of for those particular yeah. deer, other than they've managed to hold on, and and they'll likely continue to hold on as long as there's some habitat 
that's conducive to, to provide some forage and cover for them. But they certainly aren't, they're not in their heyday, and, and the trajectory doesn't look good, especially at the frequency in which these, these storms are, are getting. So I have, a, I have a, an opinion question for you, and, and I ask it because the work that you do and the experience that you have um, provides some, um, some weight to your opinion. And, it, and it's going to sound like a little bit of a crazy question maybe, but I know some people are thinking okay. it. Um, given what you just said about the, uh, our more southern areas and our surge-prone areas, why, in your opinion, over generations especially, did the deer not decide to leave and not come back? Yeah, they're they're there, Locke. That's a great question. They've been there for a long time because you've got these long growing seasons, and 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 it's providing traditionally has provided you know optimum forage in some of those marshes, especially where they are fresher and the mosaic of plants that are there. Many of them are palatable to deer. Uh, so when you know so. For eons, you've had some, you know, especially where you have deposition of soils, where you had coastal building, which we're not in that realm anymore with a few exceptions. For the most part, we're obviously, you know, we're, we're plagued with coastal land loss. But where you, you know, you had just, um, you had these lands that were, that had long growing seasons, if not year-round growing seasons, that provided everything that deer needed to thrive. So, Thus, they, they were successful most years because, obviously, the majority of years they weren't impacted by storms. So you had back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back foreign crops that aren't impacted, lots of green groceries that are green year-round, and those deer thrived in, in that situation. And to the point of you go back to the restocking that occurred between 49 and 69 uh, a lot of folks probably don't realize that many of the deer that were stocked in other parts of Louisiana where deer were actually absent from um, were actually captured and moved from coastal areas, areas, um, you know, down near the mouth of the Mississippi. Deer were there in good numbers. Uh, you know, hunters didn't have easy access to them for obvious reasons. Uh, deer were thriving there in those systems to the point of where they were there were enough deer and, and healthy enough numbers to where you could easily capture and, and move those animals into other areas. So there's parishes now, you know, in our state that we take for granted because, uh, you know, that, that deer have always been there, but in actuality, you know, they had to be stocked in some of those same parishes, uh, you know, more than 50, 60 years ago. And they were coming from those coastal areas. And they, the sad thing is, is many of those areas that served as, uh, stocking sites are now just in peril they just extensive habitat loss land loss subsidence you know just the it's, it's getting lower wetter and, and and structurally the plant communities are changing because of further encroachment of salt water and deer that were once prevalent in some of those areas are now just kind of holding on yet the areas they were stocked to to the north they're thriving, um, you know, in comparison to where they were pre-stocking. So while the deer themselves didn't pack up and move lock, I, I took a long way of answering that we kind of facilitated that for them in some yeah. cases because De many parishes in Louisiana actually had received deer from those coastal parishes, and now those deer who are transplants are doing quite well, and folks are none the wiser that those deer that were actually 
from coastal parishes. But do, do you feel that, like... that's that's it in a nutshell. And unfortunately, uh, you know, it's just changed so much for many of those coastal deer. And, yeah. and there's some exceptions. At Chafalaya Delta, still have a little bit of land building coming out in those areas, and deer are doing pretty well in some of those marshes, even especially in St. Mary. But when we're talking about the mouth of the Mississippi, uh, where those deer were doing really well um, way back 50, 60 years ago, um, it's just been a it's been a slow and steady decline, uh, along with the loss of land in those areas. Right. I I want to go back to um, just a, a few questions about uh, the other area that we referenced. That's that's beyond the storm surge, but experienced the habitat damage from wind and localized flooding and things like that. Um, yeah. I look at I look at a piece of property that that I manage that has a large stand of plantation pines which were not really affected because they're not big enough and tall enough to really be blown over or anything like that. Okay. But there's a, there is a percentage of old uh, wetland bottom hardwoods and those were obviously very affected. It seems to me, yeah. just glancing across it, basically every tree of a certain size and height got blown over. You know. Um, and they don't have a, a a very deep, strong root ball in those areas because they're on you know ground that stays wet for a large majority of the year and all that sort of thing. So, um, but when I look at it from a hunter's perspective, you know I've got cameras on this, and I and I and I say this, and I'm using my my uh, property here as an example because I know that it is comparable to what a lot of people are seeing right now as they get back out and, and look at their property and get ready for hunting season. I've got areas that I've hunted for now five or six years, and I'm very much um, have a lot of data, and, and, and I really know what's going on in those areas in terms of how the deer use them and all those kind of things. When I look at them now, you know, you talked a lot about the, the changes that are going to happen in the near future as the sunlight breaks through that, that more dense canopy and all that kind of stuff. But speaking more directly about the coming months – with these large, and when I mean large, I mean large trees down yeah. everywhere. And what was once 10 acres of open, pretty hardwood flat is now just littered with huge treetops and large trunks that you have to walk a long ways just to get around them and things like that. Um, do you guys have any data or do you just have an opinion on uh, what what are the deer going to go through in terms of how they use these areas and or, or is that just really not in their DNA? They just kind of take it what they're given and and continue to to use the landscape, however they can. Yeah, it it would be an an opinion because it, that would really, that really your insight there would come from if you had deer that were collared that you were looking at prior to the event and you would look at movement patterns after. And while we've done lots of telemetry work. About as far south as we've done it is West Baton Rouge Parish, um, and with that data, um, it was fortunately during the years of that study that there wasn't a, a you know a major hurricane that that changed or affected the forest as you described. Uh, so, so it really would be an opinion, but it's going to um, you know in the case of of cover, uh, as long as it's not inundated. Um, and even if it does have water, obviously deer will still readily move through it and utilize it as escape cover from hunters or predators. Um, they are going to still utilize that 
Uh, as far as the benefit of, um, you know, will it change the patterns? I, absolutely. Uh, if you're set up, lock and you had a couple of stands hung where those deer were transitioning, they were eating acorns at night, then in the morning they were coming into a younger pine plantation to bed down during the day, and you were intercepting them at a corridor, you know, between the two, uh, this year they're not going to be utilizing that same pattern because those acorns just aren't available. So they're going to have to shift to another food source. Thus, those stand locations, um, you know, are, are going to be impacted. You're going to definitely see a difference um, in, you know, in the field and on your cameras uh, this year. And I experienced that last year. I own a little bit of property in Vernon Parish and had a couple of setups that were exactly as you described, whereas I had some hardwood areas that were impacted and just, you know, whether it was cameras or just field observation, uh, the, you know, the animal pattern as far as, you know, them coming out of the hardwood bottom in the, you know, early morning, coming back into that cover that was provided by that adjoining, you know, pine that may have been first thin, they, it, they were so predictable. And last year they weren't. Some of our stand sightings were down in some locations and up in others. And so the, so it does. It, 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 it does mix things up a little bit. Um, does it lower the carrying capacity for the property? Uh, obviously, the answer probably is no. Uh, the, the, you know, there's going to be some improvements in browse in some form or fashion, um, you know, associated with that wind damage, and, and thus it should at least carry the number of deer it carried before, if not more. But, but yeah, on the ground, you're going to see some of those changes, and it's really, that's an opinion, and, and that's what I observed last year, and I, I expect some of the same especially if your strategy was kind of honed in a, between hunting a, a food source and hunting a bedding area and just trying to intercept deer between. Uh, obviously, when that food source in the form of hard mass is not there, then, then yeah, and, you know, that, that's going to that's gonna change parts of the property and, and your strategies, will ha you'll have to adapt to those uh, for that very reason. And uh, again, that's just an opinion but and, yeah. and, and, and an observation I made, but it's an opinion of based on that observation. I've heard many times, and Kyler, you may have heard this in a deer camp somewhere before as well, that when given the opportunity, a, a deer will often take the path of least resistance, assuming that that path, you know, still provides them the cover and the safety that they, you know, naturally exactly. have an instinct for. Sure. And and I, I think about that, and I think about the physical barriers that have been created by this by these downed trees and all of that. So um, one thing I've already noticed, just in the last two weeks, I go – and check things out and there are deer bedded up in those treetops in those hardwoods where it used to be wide mm -hmm. open ground and the only time you saw deer right. is like you said as they were feeding or transitioning through to go from a to b that was just an area that they meandered through feeding and making their way from a to b and now you try to go into those places and i've already made the made the mental note that hey i can't approach these stand locations this way because there's deer bedding up in that treetop that didn't used to be there and i'm gonna blow them out of here trying to get exactly. in here you know um, but I guess, I guess in saying that, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of bringing that conversation that way. Is I think it's it's probably safe to say that that aside from their feeding pattern, their general travel routes. I mean, I, I don't think a deer is just going to purposely make a very difficult leap over a large trunk because it's across no, his. No. He's going to, you know, so in that case, gonna, it's going to funnel them different directions, right? 
Correct. You're you're going to have some trails that are going to emerge um, that deer are going to utilize so keying in. And again, we're getting really more into hunting tactics and strategies and biology of the animal. But definitely, uh, yeah, they're they're not going to expend any more energy than they need to to get from A to B to get the resources they need. So you know, in nature, you have to be efficient or or you don't survive. So. Um, you know, they're going to still be as efficient as possible. Utilize those areas, but obviously uh, they're not just going to jump over uh, 20 logs if they can follow one little trail that snakes through there that affords them some, you know, a, an easier path uh, with less effort to, to get across there. So, um, you know, th- those it. patterns may emerge. Um, I have one more topic that I want you or just kind of uh, an ending question that I want to um, wrap the, the the conversation up with. Kyler, anything else before we do that? No, I'm good. No, you're good? Okay. Well, it's a lot of, uh, again, we love having you on because you provide, you say things in a way that we want to say them, and you say them better. And, and then you also uh, provide <laughs> a lot of, of great data. But I, I just kind of want to wrap up with, with allowing you to give us your outlook on things and and again if you would just kind of break this up into two parts uh the part that 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 you 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 clarified it pretty well the part that's prone to the surge which is a big big problem and the parts that aren't so much prone to the surge but are being affected by the storm damage um of wind and localized flooding and things like that um from a short-term and a long-term outlook um you touched on some of these things in, in in data that you observed with previous storms but what do you think people um, how, how, how would you encourage people to behave as hunters in these areas? And, and what is your outlook on, on this season and in the immediate, you know, couple of years following? Well, as a, as a hunter hunting a property, uh, whether it's property you own or lease or whether you're invited to hunt on someone else's property is, is this year, it's probably pretty important to be cognizant of, of what, what you observe in the form of, whether it's on cameras or from the field. Um, you know, if you're in an area that was severely impacted and uh, by surge and flood water and, and you're not seeing any fawns out there, then that's an obvious sign that it there's a need to back off or, or not really harvest antlerless deer. Uh, of course, on other properties, you're seeing lots and lots. You're seeing basically the one to two fawns per doe that you've seen any and every other year than probably no reason to modify any behavior just just go about your normal strategies and and have you know fun and enjoy your hunts and and harvest some deer uh but you know be cognizant of 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 what you observe once you take to the field and and just um you know typically in past events as as well as what we saw in southwest louisiana uh, you know, the focus on the community and, and helping people in your community certainly will take precedent over everything else. And and we normally just don't see those, you know, while someone, you need a break and, and hunters will make that escape and go make a hunt that weekend. We typically just don't see the, the level of hunting and hunting efforts uh, post-storm. Um, so, you know, those, those are things that we predict, but, you know, when you do go out there, we ask you to be safe and, and cognizant of what you observe and, and safe, especially just because of the amount of, of obstacles in your way and, and navigating on that landscape, whether it's on water or across land and cognizant of trees that are leaning or, or limbs that are broken, but haven't fallen and just take some extra steps of, of being 
of being aware of your surroundings, um, you know, and, and look out for others. You know, with all this rainfall, even here this week, you know, culverts that could be washed out, uh, crossing that may be inundated. Don't just assume that it's there under it. You know, there, it, it, something could have eroded or washed. So, just being being aware of your 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 set your uh, surroundings and and taking a little bit safer approach and and be proactive too in the form of if you if you suspect something um, on the property you hunt is 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 as a potential hazard, you know notify your fellow hunters or put some type of ribbon or barrier up and um, you know if there's something that's hanging or you know that could be a danger to a stand then you know obviously you know communicate if you can't do anything about it then then make folks aware so. Those little things, uh, which aren't even deer related, but but opening with open with as far as just being cognizant of what you observe, that's going to be pretty important because the result on your property, the impacts are going to be extremely variable, but specific to you. So some folks are going to have a, a huge, you know, negative impact in the form of uh, fawn loss, and other folks won't. And just being cognizant of that and, and factoring that into your harvest decisions will help you not only navigate through this season, but set you up for better success in the seasons to come. Awesome. Well, um, Kyler, if you don't have any other questions, uh, I think you have more than covered the stuff that we wanted to provide to our listeners. It's great information. I agree. Great information. And, um, you know, I I would add, uh, because I've done this myself already, but if you're in one of these areas, don't just assume – that that tree stand that made it through the storm didn't actually have something hit it or just the simple whip around of the wind didn't affect it check those stands just because it doesn't visibly appear um you got to kind of think about what those things went through during that storm and and you go in there at daylight on opening morning and try to get up in it and find out that it's very loose on the tree or some weld was weakened by some impact that's just not visible to you from the ground so uh, another thing I would yeah. add to that, and and before I let you go, very quickly, I, I just want to get your response to one thing because I see it on our community page with Louisiana Bowhunter, and I see it in a lot of places. Um, the, you mentioned the Mississippi State University deer research uh, in, in, in another topic we were discussing earlier, and, and they are obviously very active in the deer community, but you see this this undercurrent on social media and obviously we all have to take some of social media with a grain of salt but you see this undercurrent that the departments in louisiana and mississippi are are somehow in competition with each other over out-of-state hunting and all this kind of thing can you put that to rest because i just don't believe that's true or am i wrong yeah i'm 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 likely out of touch with that kyle um uh lock i'm sorry um i really don't haven't really I, I can't really offer anything to that i was a little bit surprised by that when you when you mentioned it uh um no i nothing that we're actively pursuing in competition uh we're, we're all focused on our own states and and you know our primary objective of providing opportunity and, and then monitoring the health of the herd and and learning from one another whenever possible um and and being good neighbors and and that's that's really always been our focus and really across the southeast uh it's uh 
it's it's like a small world. Um, it seems big, but it seems like we're on the phone communicating with one another about one um, regulation or another or one research project or another simply because someone else has some experience and you're just trying to gain and learn some insight into into their experience before you uh, dive off into it yourself. And so, no, it's definitely not a competition. Much really more of a more more of a cooperative than anything else. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear Lock, that. Lock, yeah. Let me ask you a question real fast. Okay. Are you are you sure. referring to Mississippi setting regulations that are in fa- more favor of residents of Mississippi than it is? out-of-state Louisiana residents hunting in Mississippi? Well, yes, and but not, not necessarily that simply. Um, this is actually, okay. you know, Jonathan, you have actually provided me a stage in which to ask a question from someone that's more involved that's been in my head because, Kyler, yes, what you're asking, but really deeper than that, I, every time the state of Louisiana or the state of Mississippi um, puts something out there that, that somehow has a non-resident effect to the other state or a perceived one, there's always a litany of comments about, well, they just don't want, you know, that affects it. And you see it with turkeys more than anything because obviously Mississippi has a ton of turkey habitat. So every time Mississippi does anything with turkeys, all the surrounding states get all, or the hunters get all up in arms. They just don't want us coming over there hunting. And, and you see that, and I've seen it historically, and this comes from someone who grew up in Mississippi and has now lived in Louisiana for 20 years. So I've seen it from both sides, and I don't feel like I don't have a lot of personal um, experience with, 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 which is why I ask you the question, but I just don't feel like that's the truth. It might feel that way, Kyler, to your point, because somebody does something somebody being the state of mississippi or the state of louisiana does something that is more conducive to the resident hunters and more challenging for the non-resident hunters or something but and it's always viewed by the by the average hunter that accesses both states as oh well that's just their way of affecting us non-resident guys and i just don't believe that's true and and i just wanted to hear it from you use the word cooperative and that's the best word you could have used to me because i that's how i've always Hope that it was and felt like that it was. And I, and I go back to my previous comment about encouraging people to do their surveys and things like that because you guys can only do a, as much as you're given in terms of data with, with a lot of this stuff. And and um, so, yeah, I mean, that that y- you I know you started off the, the, the response by saying that you didn't feel like um, it was something that, that you could necessarily answer, but you ended up answering it perfectly because the fact that you guys are on the phone with each other, working with each other on different things that come up in, in the neighboring states is exactly what I wanted to hear because that's how I feel like it is as opposed to, oh, well, I get less days to hunt or I've got to pay more money to hunt. It's just it's all about me, but it's not. It's about the state itself, whichever state it is that's, that's making a change. So, um, yeah. but anyway... We won't keep you any longer. We greatly appreciate your time once again, and, and I'm sure, sure. It, that we'll have you back on to talk about something in the future. I hope so. But uh, thanks again for your time. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks to both Thanks to, uh, to both of you. All right. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you so much, Jonathan. So um, Jonathan is a wealth of information, um, and, uh, you know, when it comes to – for me personally, when it comes to the kind of things that 
we talked about with him and the kind of really more so the information that he shared with us, um, what I find myself doing is often comparing that information to conversations that I've had or things that I've read from everyday people that have opinions that aren't necessarily factually based where he provides facts on those things. So sure. I want to know, Kyler, like, give me one or two things that you, your biggest takeaways from, 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 I know it was a lot of information, but from the information that we just got. No, I got them. I got them. I know exactly what All they right. are. So give me your because couple ex- of takeaways. I'm excited to learn the percent, the percentage breakdown of harvest per harvest numbers of deer, um, d- factored into number of hunters and their success rates. I thought that information, that was my personal favorite thing to learn from that podcast, not because it trumped anything else that we talked about, but because it satisfied something that I've been wondering for a long time, but also something that I hear a lot of complaints on, which is that Louisiana has too liberal of a deer season. I even believe that Louisiana has too liberal of a deer season with quantity of deer that can be harvested. But as he said, less than 5% of all hunters and hunter effort, not hunter efforts, less than 5% of all deer hunters in, in aggregate rifle, crossbow and bow and archery um, are actually killing more than four deer. Okay. And less than 1% are tagging out annually. So it's not actually a problem. Now, what my to segue into that, into something cooler for me, which is as he starts talking more about the per property issues that that may cause and how you might be a part of that outlying number of 1%. If you are in a club of 1,000 acres and 30 members and you have multiple members killing a large number of deer and subsequently a large number of members that are killing very few deer, then that's a small ecosystem that's out of whack. That's what he meant by per property numbers. Um, But like he said, on average as a state, it's not out of control. And so that, that can be, I mean, you're, you're following me, right? I am. I am. And, and I, it's, it's, it's to me, a most difficult conversation because it is a very difficult conversation now. yeah every to, to, to use your example the th- all 30 of those guys in that hunting club have equal rights and so when sure. you talk about governing yourself as a small body that becomes really difficult and then obviously as humans our emotions and our opinions are completely driven by our personal experiences so it mm-hmm. e- you can easily see where that is your that is your exposure to the topic. So therefore, your opinion becomes: we're killing way too many deer in this state. Yep, that's that, your reality. And that yep. good good way to put it. That is your reality. That's why I made that 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 statement right in the middle of his interview. Was look then then if you're not fill out the survey because they don't ha- if 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 your reality is is even more broad than a thousand acres maybe your reality is an entire parish where you're very well connected in a community and you know what's going on all around you not just on the property that you hunt they've got to know that to factor it in if it's a big enough set of data for them to make a change or to consider making a change they've got to know it 
Well, I'll say this because this is I didn't want to say this while I was on the phone with Jonathan, because I think you and I both love to tee him up and let him talk Mm -hmm. because he's 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 uh, excellent articulator. He's very communicative. He has great information and he, you give him the ball and he's like Forrest Gump. Like you gotta, you you gotta just run. <laughs> yeah. He'll run, he'll run out of the stadium, you know, but um, this is what I really wanted to say. And I'm glad we're finishing this up at the end of the podcast, just because the state says you can kill six deer does not mean you have to kill six deer. Yeah. It doesn't have to be your club rule. And so if you're on a property in which somebody's taking advantage or killing too many compared to the, like I said, the ecosystem or the lease size compared to how many people are in the lease, make the mandate three, make it four. Maybe you can only kill one buck and two does and then you're done. And it just because this, so it sounds like the state is from the harvest numbers somewhat correct, even though we're very liberal, you can kill a lot of deer. That doesn't mean that your club has to match the state's um, uh, regulations. Yeah. Well, you know, you're just teeing up. You can up. govern yourselves. You can manage yourself. Yeah. You know, you're just teeing up the difficult conversations here because that's another one. And I'm not going to delve off into it. And I don't and I don't want you to either because there's nothing we can mm-hmm. say that won't be taken the wrong way by somebody. But the general idea that you just presented is prevalent in the entire hunting community. This idea that I can't eat a tag sandwich. How many times have you hit, read, or heard that in some form or fashion? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it doesn't have to be that way. Like, there's no, there's, there's no reason that if you don't see or have an opportunity at the animal that you're after, that you have to change your approach just to keep from not tagging out. You know, and or, or let me like I said, I wasn't going to go too deep and I'm not. But and maybe this is a conversation that we'll have on a, on a different pod. But that's that's a, that, that I don't personally I sh- I'm not going to say that you shouldn't, because I don't think as long as somebody's being legal and ethical that there's I don't have a problem with it in the big picture. But I don't understand that mentality, you know, and, and it carries into what we're talking about here is. If your only opinion comes from, well, the state, my license says I can kill six deer, and the way things are going around here, I can't, ain't no way I can kill six deer. Well, you don't have you to kill. You can six. kill six deer. You're welcome to kill six deer. But if your property, if you have four people hunting 500 acres, you can't afford to take 24 deer off of that property. Right. It, it, it doesn't have it. It's not there. And so th- that's the thing. There's nothing in that mandate, or it's not a mandate. Sorry, we've been living regulation too long. Every, yeah. Everything's a mandate. Right. Um, there's nothing in that regulation that says you have to kill all six there, right there. Okay. You kill what the property can allow, can handle, and still thrive and sustain. And so, if if you want to kill three there and then go get another lease or go hunt public land or go hunt your buddy's farm in Concordia Parish or something, well, then go get your other three there. But I disagree heavily with this hiding behind the law. Oh, I can kill 60 or so I'm going to. Well, you're going to crush this property is what you're going to do. Because if all four or eight or 10 of us do that, you can't take 60 deer off a thousand acres if you have 10 10 members plus guests plus family and if you if you know somebody in another location that is capable of doing that you can't compare your situation to theirs sure absolutely Um, so 
that's that was so pumped up literally like dancing when he was giving me those figures because i i i, I knew in my in my soul that it was less than one percent of deer hunters were actually tagging out right i knew it well I, 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 I if you had put a gun to my head or whatever uh, you know whatever analogy you want to give here and made me ma- make a guess i would say the same thing because if i take any emotional debate type of feelings out of the conversation and i just try to look at it legitimately i don't know that many people that do uh, or any really i mean i'm sure i can find somebody that i know and i communicate with on a regular basis that's an acquaintance or a friend that kills six deer but honestly every one of those people that i know the only reason that they do is because they're hunting in a location where they have to kill enough does for a management program I don't know anybody that's just strictly, you know, without with that caveat taken out where, well, I mean, they probably wouldn't shoot all those does, but they need to because it's what they're doing for management. If you take that caveat out, how many people do you really know? I'm, I know there are a few, but how many really? Not that many. And if you try to be objective and look at it from that perspective, that number shouldn't surprise you when he says it. Sure. Not at all. I was just had, happy to hear it. Yeah. Like, kind of confirmed because well, i've been thinking that for a while. i i i wouldn't i can't be so arrogant to say that i knew it was one percent but i would have said for a fact there's no way that that more than three percent of the hunting deer hunting community in the state is killing all of their deer tags yeah and if you there's can no way. if you factor in the, the the uh the statistic that we all know is true this is not uh you know um, assumed or anything, we know that deer hunter participation is on a decline across the country and all of that. When you consider that, it stands to reason that those numbers, not only are people not killing all of their, their bag limit, but a lot of that number are people that don't, they don't even hunt enough to kill their, their bag sure. limit if they wanted Absolutely. to. If they had opportunity yep. um, for access, they still wouldn't because they buy a license and they hunt around the holidays with their family and that's it but we know that hunter participation is on the decline so yeah it's great information and um i I, i'm gonna without going off into it because i said i wasn't going to i'm just gonna provide one like opinion or whatever that you can take or you can assume that i'm whatever you want to assume because i say this but i have found in my own personal uh, I don't like using the word career as a hunter, so I'm going to just say my journey, my personal journey as a hunter. I've gone through a lot of stages from a young man learning to hunt, a kid to a young man to an adult with kids who I'm teaching to hunt and all that kind of stuff. And I've hunted in a lot of different ways over those over those years. And I, and I consider myself in, a, in several ways in life extremely blessed, and this is one of them. I've been blessed to have been able to hunt a lot since I was very little. And I turned 40 years old last month, and for my entire life, I've been able to hunt a lot in a lot of good places, and I've hunted a lot of ways. And I can tell you unequivocally that one of the number one changes that I made as a hunter mentally that has made me a more satisfied and a more um, feeling of accomplishment and, and all that kind of thing is I have an idea in my head and it's, and it's usually very well defined of what I'm out to do, what I'm out to kill and how I'm looking to hunt. And I don't deviate from that. And so, therefore, I don't ever have this feeling of, well, it's the last day of my, my vacation and I better shoot something. I don't because that's just not how I hunt. 
you know, and, and yes, mm-hmm. I probably don't hunt as much these days because there are days of opportunity where I know that my goals can't be met that day, so I just don't put pressure on the woods. And that sounds like, well, I don't want to do that. I want to hunt as often as I can. But I'm telling you, there is that there's something greater, and I know I've mentioned this in one way or the other, there's something greater from a fulfillment standpoint because we're not all hunting for sustenance we're not we're hunting for sport there's something greater recreation it is and there's something greater to orchestrating a plan and seeing that plan through than than there is to just winging it and then going well that ain't what i set out to do but i'm happy with it i got to post a picture on facebook you know Mm -hmm. that just and i'm not just talking about the age or the size of the buck you kill that's not i'm talking about the whole big picture so let's not let's not go any further. Uh, for me, I, I really uh, just wanted to hear the 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 information that he had. Most of it pertains to obviously not what we can per, what we can take today because we don't know and we won't know for for a little while what the overall effects of this storm has. But just comparing what we have assessed in damage today to uh, comparables of of the data that they've collected from previous storms and what that's done i will say this growing up in mississippi on the mississippi river i have obviously been a first person party to a lot of really bad floods on on land mm-hmm. to the point where the state of mississippi and the state of louisiana has done it in conjunction in many of these years completely shut the deer season down deer and deer season because because of the stress on the animals and the lack of uh, loss of habitat due to the severe flooding. And I can't tell you how many times I've stood on a bluff or stood, a, you know, at, at the edge of the backwater and thought, how in the world is this ever going to come back and be the same? Like, mm-hmm. how in the world do they survive this? Why don't they just leave? All of the questions that we hinted at in that conversation that I'm sure many of you listening have had yourselves when you look at uh, what the river flooding, and specifically over the last couple of decades, we've had some really bad flooding years um, over the last 12, 15 years especially. But then the hurricane thing to me, when you look at the coastal areas, that's even worse because it's not only the fact that the whole area gets flooded in the same way that the basin and, and the river bottoms get flooded, but they go through a traumatic event and it's salt water. I mean, it's like it's like when the Mississippi River floods all of the all of the basin and and bottom areas and we think about oh my gosh how's this ever going to recover how's it ever going to be the same it's what's happening to those coastal areas when one of these storms comes through like this it's like that on mega steroids because it's not just a flood it's everything else and then to hear that they've got this historical data where i think the most amazing thing that i heard and i didn't comment it because on it at the time because i was just soaking it in the fact that they went through that, that survey and had 11 of the 15 tag deer show back up on camera in this area where they had tremendous storm surge intrusion was amazing to me. It's been amazing yeah. to me my whole life when I see deer come back to the river bottoms miles away from how far the river went, you know. And then you come back and all of a sudden there's that same deer that you can identify in some way and it's like wow that's amazing that they had to go that far to get away from the water or they found some way to survive while the water was here and here they are again but for 11 of the 15 and we all know how many of us run cameras you know good and well you you're only getting a small percentage of what's out there on that camera i don't care how good Mm -hmm. you are at running cameras you're not getting everything on camera so that was amazing to me that was a really because like i said as 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 stunning as it is 
if you stop and think about it, when you look at the Mississippi River flood issues, you can still see a pathway, right? Like, okay, well, it's a long way, but we know that deer can swim a long way. We know that they have instincts to get out of there. And yes, there is dry land and sustainable habitat they can go to. But when you look, and, and, and not only that, but typically it's a slow rise, right? It just pushes them. When you look at a yeah. hurricane, it's like, boom, you know? It brings up a lot of questions about, about how they operate around that. But all that and, and the fact that they have all this historical data that, you know, except for when they lose habitat, when the habitat's not lost and, and it's actually recoverable, that the deer come back and that they thrive. Mm-hmm. That was positive. Um, I, I was glad to hear that because there's a part of me, when I look at some of the communities from Fushan, Leeville, Grand Isle, and, and those areas where it really – I've got so many friends who their camps are just gone. Like, they're not, like, torn up. They're gone. They don't even exist anymore. And when I look at that, I think, not just deer, but every, like, is there anything left and will it ever come back? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it's, um, it's incredible that they can live through that. And maybe not in any of those exact areas that I just mentioned, but in a lot of those coastal areas, there's a reason for promise, at least where the land wasn't washed away and there's something for them to come back to. Um, it's nice to hear somebody with his expertise and his experience say it, you know, pointedly, hey, we've got data that shows they're going to return and they're going to thrive. And that's awesome. Yeah. So anyway, um, we, we've alluded to already in the intro to the podcast that, you know, what we're doing with season four and um, excited about it. Very thankful for all the positive comments and, and people. I mean, it feels really good for people to, you know, basically in some ways beg hey when are you guys gonna release an episode you know when, when's it coming yeah. that feels really good it really does guys and we appreciate it i want to encourage you to uh check out the guys that we've mentioned who are supporting the podcast this year that's very important to us and also i've got a package um that just showed up on my doorstep today from mr kyler with all the new hat designs that we have out this year and we're going to be releasing all that stuff, and it's going to be available online and at all of the stores that, that carry Louisiana Boat Hunter merchandise. So we encourage you guys to uh, to check those things out and pick up a new Louisiana Boat Hunter hat when you have a chance. And, um, you know, the last thing that I have to say before we wrap up is if you're listening to the podcast and you don't already, please go out and follow us on Facebook and on Instagram and our social media channels because... You know, there's a lot of stuff that we share there, but then there's also the community page that we have on Facebook and stuff like that. And what we want is for our community to respond to us, but to each other and talk about hunting, talk about archery, and, uh, you know, just make this thing work for everybody who's interested in it. Absolutely. Encourage them to do that. So, you got anything else? Nope, I'm good. It's uh, episode 67 is a wrap, Uh, season four. Pretty exciting. Yep. So uh, look forward to next week. All right, man. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show, reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com. And if you want to help support Louisiana Bowhunter, go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise. If you don't have any at your local shop, let us know and we'll reach out to them. Or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day. See you next week.